right, so, well, look, I know you guys are busy. We have a lot to get through. Art also mentioned that he is on the truck today. Um, oh, God, Art. Jeez. So if at any point you need to go, we will we will Photoshop you back in. Over that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope I don't. Sounds good. Well, why don't we start with this? So, so as they say where I grew up, actions. Um, thank you guys all for being here. Uh, there is much to discuss um, on these topics, and I am actually really, really proud to have you three uh, together. Uh, Jonathan Fights, uh, Beyond Lucid Technologies, uh, we're going to be doing this session for the Sacred Cows and Data Cubes podcast for GEMS, the Journal of EMS, so we'll leave a little ad for them in there. Um, and I generally do these topics one-on-one, -on -one, uh, to be honest, when we have these. Uh, for Scott's benefit, I'm going to point out it's a video podcast or a vodcast. Clothes are required, but only from this point up. They can be painted. They can be part of the background. I care not. Um, but uh, yeah, so oh, anyway, the, uh, the normally we do these I do these types of discussions one on one, and they, and, and I kind of let them go in any number of directions. Um, but as I've had conversations with each of you, and I want to get into you, each of you introducing yourselves in a second, um, we've touched on areas ranging from education to post traumatic stress to human resources, and the fact that education and post traumatic stress bleed into human resources. The idea that data per se, whatever the source, can inform all of those things, um, especially now in the age of COVID. Um, you know, knowing whether somebody has shown up, you know, as uh, Scott, I'll have you talk about in a minute, we talk about things like, have they had a vaccine? Are the people allowed to know whether they've had a vaccine? Do you want to know whether they've had a vaccine? Um, you know, when we get into questions of, is a pill just as good? You know, and, and that's just on one front. Then we talk about uh, taking that out of the 911 service and putting it into areas like health in the home. Uh, you know, moving the hospital into the home, community paramedicine, but also in a structured fashion. Um, the the what, what I found is that there are some common threads that the three of you represent. Um, and so Sean being on the phone, I'll certainly try to point to you over self because I can't see your expression. Um, but the idea that these are overlapping topics and one thing that everybody, hey, there he is. <laughs> He's really here. Um, but uh, no, be safe, man, be safe. Without the cameras, fine. You're on mute. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. I am pulled over off to the side of the road in downtown Boston. Okay. Now, say you could also be on Storrow Drive and it would look the same. You wouldn't be going anywhere. <laughs> uh, so, um, the uh, BU Pride. Uh, so, uh, anyway, so I think what I want to sort of set you guys to talk to each other about today, and I'm going to kind of curate a little bit, but I think the when you go to a conference, like a AAA's conference, like an EMS World conference, like a HCA conference in Kansas City, where I'm going to be next week, talking about the use of data to identify sparks of post-traumatic stress as opposed to sparks of infection, like we've been talking about for the past 18 months or so. Right? The idea that these are these these topics get discussed in a bubble because you've got a bubble at the conference, right? You had to have you had to submit a talk. Here, you don't have to submit a talk. And, and the reality is these, these topics are overlapping. And you three are three of the smartest people. I did just realize we are all white men. 
on this conference. So probably worth a discussion on that at some other point, but we'll let that sort of simmer here in the background and at least we recognize it. Um, and, and I think I, I kind of want you guys to, to take the, the respective angles and experiences that you have. And, and if you were going to talk to an interested audience that wanted to understand how education and law and policy and data and regulation and clinical practice blend together, right? Because in a daily, in a daily practice, that's what they do. That's where I hope we'll go today. Um, and so with that intro, if it's all right, I'm just going to kind of go counterclockwise. Um, Scott, Art, Sean, is that the order it is on my screen here? Um, tell us, you know, tell the world, you know, the four people who don't already know you and your voice, uh, who you are. <laughs> uh, and, uh, sure. So my name is Scott Moore. I'm uh, a 31-year EMT, an 18-year employment uh, attorney and HR consultant. Um, I've previously run ambulance services of very various sizes uh, and uh, composition. But uh, as of the last six years, I've served, um, you know, I've run my own uh, consulting uh, organization and law firm, as well as served as the American Ambulance Association's Human Resources and Operations Consultant. So um, that, in a nutshell, still an EMT, stopped working on the truck about probably 18 months ago uh, during COVID. And, uh, and outside of that, though, I think in, you know, due to age and all the other reasons why old guys stop working on ambulances, that's uh, spending an awful lot of time over the last year talking about workforce. And we, we got to mention Newton in there. I put an ad. Oh, yeah, yeah. In addition to that, right, I am the uh, owner of uh, really what is an employee engagement feedback tool called Newton 360 um, that I uh, started a couple of years ago, have, um, you know, a couple thousand folks on the platform. But just like, you know, in all other things EMS right now, it is really hard to get supervisors and leaders to engage staff because everybody is busy doing calls and, and and unfortunately won't be able to fix the problem until we stop the wheel from spinning enough so that folks can engage employees and to sort of address some of those underlying causes that drive turnover and, and recruitment issues. Well, I feel like that's something that I hope we'll talk about today. Right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, again, the ability to utilize things like data, right? Mm -hmm. This is a data-driven video yep. podcast. Yep. It's, to identify that, you know, it, 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 I think one of the underlying mantras that I find myself saying more and more these days is, can you afford not to, dot, 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 whatever that is. And so I think to the degree that can we show the wheel how to stop spinning by emphasizing that if you, if you did things correctly, as opposed to just doing things the way that you always have, it would actually serve dividends, not only now, but help you get where you're going. So I, I don't think, I, mean, I know you sort of tack on Newton there as something that you've done, but I think it's actually potentially core to this conversation. Uh, it's something that I've thought about a lot lately is, you know, can you know your people uh, and, and what you would do if you did know that? Well, you know, and Jonathan, just to add to that is one of the reasons why I don't often bring up Newton when we're in this context is because when folks know that you have an underlying, you know, product that, you know, an app mobile application, uh, oftentimes the message gets diluted because they oh, know it. sell the product. And yeah. then the reality is um, actually I've had folks who I've known and worked with at the AAA now for the past six years, who one that I was just at the conference with, who sent me an email on the flight home that said, Hey, I understand you have this 
supervisor efficiency mobile uh, mobile engagement tool for employees specifically designed for EMS. And I say, oh yeah, yeah, you know I do. But you know, again, as a consultant, HR, employment lawyer, you know, frankly, that is what I I have. That's what I consider my fiduciary obligation first. And then you know, the the tool is something that I do believe will actually is part of the solution to the underlying problem because no matter how much we want or need supervisors to go out and do calls, no one, but no one got into leadership to do calls. They got into leadership to coach and mentor and yet the research and data suggests and we only have it in, in retail, not in EMS, that the average frontline supervisor only coaches and mentors about 6% of the time. So you take EMS where they're all distributed, it's probably two to 3% of the time. And I think frankly, that's the single biggest thing driving, in fact, our morale issues are with leadership more so than they are with staff. And that's what's driving a lot of the problems. Well, let, let's do come back to that. And we'll talk yeah. about, if, if I don't if I don't come back to myself, please bring us back to the topic of rotational training because I hope we're going to solve that together here today sure. for the first time in 12 years since I've been in this. Uh, speaking of riding the truck and mentoring, since Arden, you, are, you are sort of on the clock, as it were, we have you on borrowed time. Introduce yourself, uh, sir, chief. Jeez, I, I feel like I'm the poster child for that last uh, introduction. So, uh, so uh, my name is Art Group. It, I uh, have been managing services for almost 30 years. I've been a paramedic for 30 years this year. Um, I, uh, geez, all, all different size services. Um, you know, from the you know from a large uh, corporation service to a uh, volunteer service and to where I am today. And she's so many things in that lab uh, to, to talk about today. But um, I, I definitely think that workforce engagement has been a, you know, it's definitely a problem. As I said, I'm on the truck today. So that uh, goes to show you where, you know, where our time is being spent at the moment. Um, not the most efficient use of, of time, certainly not of mine, but not of most of the leaders in, in the in the services, but that's where we find ourselves. And um, part of that is because we don't have good data to support what we do. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, um, but I'll keep my introduction short so we can keep moving. Well, and, and, and we'll all appreciate it. That, that, that is actually, again, I, I, don't, I didn't bring you guys together by accident, let's be clear. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't just because I love seeing your respective faces. Uh, now I had the opportunity of seeing Sean's live and in person. He was one of the few people I've seen in the last 18 months. Uh, and Art, yours too. Not Actually, I, I left Sean to go see Art uh, uh, two weeks ago. So saw you guys both within a 24-hour period. That was fun. Uh, missed Scott by a few minutes, I understand. Um, but uh, no, I think that these, again, these issues are interrelated. Uh, so complicated, Yes. And if we need to have this conversation in a part one and part two and part three, by the way, I, for one, have no fear of doing that. Hopefully you guys will come back for more. Can't keep you all day here. Uh, but uh, with that, Sean, take it away. Yeah. So um, it's interesting hearing you guys talk about the, the interrelationships between staffing and whatnot. And, and I'm looking forward to getting into some of that. Uh, I'm Sean Kukowskis. I'm the director of ambulance services for the Spalding Rehab Network and the director of Spalding Hospital Ambulance Service. Uh, career paramedic, been an EMS close to 30 years, been in administration for about 10, ran the road for, for many, many years, um, finally made the leap to administration about a decade ago. Um, 
it's it's probably been one of the most challenging things I've ever encountered is trying to to manage a system, manage people, um, and you know trying to make sure that our team uh, does what they need to do, has the tools they need to do, and, and even more so has the the, the the tools to function at home. Um, Say that last part again. You cut out for a second. Was that have 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 the tools to function at home. Um, so they can, you know, do what they need to do and do what they need to do for us. It, it, it's, it's definitely been a, a challenging year. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, with that, thank you, guys. Let's, let's dig in. And I'm going to, like I said, I, I'm going to fancy my role here as moderator more than interviewer, per se, because I kind of want you guys to talk with one another. Um, you know, I'm doing this a little differently than I normally would do. But I almost want to do a free association of a couple words. Um, based on what each of you has said, even just now, and also what I hope you'll bring to this. And uh, to anyone who wants to take it away, if you don't do it yourself, I will point at you and unmute you, and then you're in the hot seat. Um, okay, stress, training, personal lives, data, and wages. I put that last one in there because apparently it is not a controversial issue. Um, but I find, and I'll add a, a fifth one as kind of an overarching uh, mess to that is social media uh, as the place where I love the meme that's gone around that I wish this pandemic would be over so all my epidemiology friends can go back to being economists. Uh, so and before that lawyers of course they're all lawyers too in their spare time um so to the degree that we know these are related which spoke in the wheel should one address first who wants to go first stress, stress training personal lives data wages and i know those are kind of free associations so i kind of want to throw that out there first and see where you go with it what comes to mind yes. if i can one thing i will say because jonathan you and i shared the data the data you know um position i think you know i think what is it you know uh, anybody without data is just has an opinion and essentially one of the challenges that we've had and I've spent the last four years with the American Ambulance Association trying to work on cost data collection is that, you know, over the last, really in the history of, of our very young profession, um, we have always struggled with data. And one of the reasons why our reimbursement levels are where they are, are because there is no systematic method of collecting data regarding costs and even some of the personnel metrics. You know, one of the challenges that um, we've highlighted when working with the different federal groups is that, you know, for example, that study, or I think the uh, information we learned from the state of Texas, that something like 25% of their certified individuals submitted a trip record in any one 30 day period, which means that the majority of the folks who are certified are actually not working for EMS services. So, you know, we don't right now have one really lead agency number one, number two, one, one central repository of data information because, you know, before they had instruments to collect data on the weather, folks would just look up at the sky and you had very little time to 
respond to the pending or you know the pending weather situation now we're in this position where the gates have been down the lights have been flashing relative to workforce for decades but everybody's sort of surprised that the train came through the crossing and i think you know we need to systematically be collecting data in virtually every part of our i mean there are more data systems in ems agencies then we know what to do with but there's no one taking all that information synthesizing the information and using that sense of that information either correlating it to other factors and or using it even in a predictive way right because this is stuff that again gates have been down lights have been flashing so i don't know i defer to the other guys what, what their thoughts are but i think data is the is sort of the place that we have to start because everything else will be either an educated or an uneducated guess and more likely the the latter well, and I'm going to throw more wrenches at you in a minute. So, go ahead. So, uh, I'll agree that, that data is an essential element. You know, as Scott said, the amount of data we collect on on just a single call is astronomical. Whether it's data we, we require for our own systems, it's data we require for, for, for Nemesis or some other uh, type of reporting system, the amount of data we collect is, is astronomical. What we do with that is a very different story. Um, as administrators and leaders, you know, we understand the need for data. We understand how to process it, how to utilize it, uh, and how to make education, educational, uh, educated decisions based upon that data. What gets lost is getting it down to the boots on the ground and, and how does the, the collection of data help relieve the stress of the job? Um, especially in the post-COVID world, EMS systems across the country have... Uh, let me back that up a little bit. Healthcare all across the country has lost their ability to flex and to compensate. And that has added uh, a tremendous amount of stress to the system. Um, we see it every day. You know, I work for a very large healthcare organization and we're in code capacity every single day because we can't get patients moved through the system. Um, and as such, crews, uh, crews and systems coming into the, into the acute care hospitals can't offload their patients. Um, which adds additional stress because the, as leaders were saying, you got to move these patients, you got to move, you got to move, you got to clear up. But there's there's nothing that they can do about it. And the system seems to have stagnated since COVID. And when you talk to the boots on the ground, you know, we talk about stress, they are getting absolutely beat to death because of workforce shortages, because of increased demand, because of just all of the the lack of our ability to flex within healthcare and, and make the adjustments as we need to. Um, we, we know that anecdotally, um, but it's difficult to, to show it with, with true data. Um, and even, even more so in, in the, the system that, that do collect a lot of data, it's tough to get the, the, the general staff to understand how this impacts their role and how, even when you talk about just performance improvement measures, how to not see it as something punitive, but to see it as something that's going to benefit them. Art? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm kind of, kind of going to kind of go the other way. So I, I think that the data is important. Well, we know what to do with the data um, in some aspects. I think some of us know what to do with the data, but the data that we're using is our data. And because the uniformity of the collection of data across services is not there, regardless of what, you know, we may want to say that we all know how to collect response times. I'm not sure we're all collecting response times the same way. 
So is that, you know, and that's just one example. So the data that we're collecting is our data. We know how to use it within our organization, but we don't know how to compare that across the industry because there's no standard in how we collect that or how we define it. Um, you know, contrary to what I think some people may think that there is a standard. I, I don't really feel that there is, but I, I would say that our, our you know, uh, and Sean mentioned this about talking about how, you know, our employees are absolutely getting hammered. I, I, I think that, you know, the, the place we need to, to start is, uh, and, it can, and it can be from a data standpoint, but the wellness of our employees, right? you know, the, our, our employee base is getting hammered, but we can tell that a lot of times by the data if we actually had the data to compare across the industry. And I think that that's one of the problems we, we face. You know, what is, and you know, we can go back and look at number of calls that a crew member does, that, that really is not a significant number. It's time on task, that, that's a much more significant number. But also, you know, it, what are our crews being exposed to on a daily basis and how often and, and how frequently? And are we tracking that and are we talking to them and are we having meaningful conversations with staff? I, I, I think that that's probably, you know, kind of taking that data and pulling it back to the HR side as well. Um, you know, chat. I, I guess I'm kind of on the fence there, Jonathan. I think both of them are important. I, I think they tie together in a significant way. Well, and like I said, I'm going to throw some wrenches in here in a second, but I did want to throw out what, what ask if while we're talking at the granular level about data. Start thinking about the word evidence as opposed to data, because that's where I'm going with this. <laughs> but our, as long as you and I have known each other, years now, it's remarkable how time moves. Um, you've always worked on the borders of states, right? So like, um, or, or at least close to, such that you may cross lines, right? So I, I find myself, you know, the statement that you made there about we know how to do, we know how to work with our information. Right. What do you find is a practical reality that, uh, you know, Sean, you mentioned Nemesis, for example, and I, for one, am a big proponent of Nemesis. I mean, a pain in their butt, and I'll continue to be. And I also think it's an extremely important part of the ecosystem that is very little understood in terms of the importance of standardization. Uh, and, uh, and not just across EMS and, it's, and mobile medicine in general, but across the healthcare ecosystem. We can talk about that if you want. But... Um, how have you found it affects people on the ground? Are when you, based in Vermont, cross into New York, for example, and find folks speaking a different language, or cross into, from Connecticut into Massachusetts, like do do the disjoints on the ground? I know in, here in California that was an issue for years in the earlier part of my career in EMS when reciprocity across county lines is a young thing here. So you would literally cross a county line and find that your protocol, which is totally fine where you are could get you in serious trouble in another location. Um, what do you find that that does to the relationships amongst the clinicians on the ground uh, in terms of not only their work inside the agency, but how you can liaise with others to have a communal response? Uh, do you find that that gets in the way? Do you find it's kind of an afterthought? So tell me a little bit about that. I think it's an interesting adjunct to your work in particular. I, you know, I, 30 years ago, it was a much bigger issue because there were significant differences in standard of care. Uh, you know, I, I started my career working on a border service where the standard of care in the state that we transported from was much higher than the state that we transported to. 
but we operated under the standard of care where we came from, not where we were going to. So um, it, that was a, mu a much bigger thing. That, that standard of care has become a little more consistent. Now it's more of a staffing and certification issue. You know, when you cross the line from Vermont to New York, there's a difference. You know, there's a difference when you cross from Massachusetts to, to Vermont. Uh, you know, we'll use critical care level just as an example. You know, if you're a Massachusetts-based service or if you're a, a New York-based service, you don't have to have a critical care certification to take a patient that's on a vent out of the state of New York and bring them, I mean, out of the state of Vermont, bring them to New York. However, if it's a Vermont licensed service doing that trip, that Vermont licensed service, the, the provider has to be licensed by the state at the critical care level. And, and that creates a little bit of a rub amongst staff from one service to the other because the standard is not the same based on what the license plate on the truck is. And it has nothing to do with the provider. Talk to, talk to me then a little bit. Take this. We're going we're gonna to toss it back in the direction of you and, and Scott and the overlap there. Um, but I know you and I have had some offline conversations around <clears throat> where, as you say, a rub among personnel clinically, but there's also an economic investment, right, that folks have to be willing to undertake. Um, I had that conversation with a rural provider not far from you um, about the amount of basically the distance they'd have to go uh, in order to go to school to get a different level of service to take better care of their community but not often because it's a tiny little service in the middle of, of the hills. Um, so there was this, this challenge that they felt, you know, that the, again, the, the economics, the education, the licensure kind of rubbed against one another to say, if our mission is to take care of our community, are these other inputs affecting our ability to meet that mission? But in a way that, for example, without a unified front, um, there is a, you know, everyone's sort of fighting that battle on their own. Um, so talk to me, maybe Scott, I'll punt that to you a little bit, but I think, uh, and Art, if you want to chime in up, please feel free, but to the degree that you're talking about those differences, and when you look at, you know, obviously there are lots of different colors of patches in this industry. Um, that's the source, I believe, and I'll say on record, of a lot of trouble. Um, every, every agency, every person for themselves, it's something that the fire service does not have uh, in its it does not have that drama behind it. It does locally. There's plenty of drama. The fire service. Oh, we all know this. Um, but but they, you know, at the end of the day, you come at, come at one of us. You come at all of us. Uh, EMS does not have that. Um, I know that is a live wire issue. Uh, I don't shy away from such things in a podcast with sacred cows in its name. Um, but but talk to me about you know when you start rubbing up against the question of unified voices. I won't use the big U word. Um, but, but I do think it's how, without a unified voice, with the status quo of the industry as it is, where these issues of people getting churned out exist today, you can't build, the AFL-CIO was not built in a day, but took years, right? And lots of political chasms to build that sort of thing. So given the status quo where we are now in the midst of a pandemic and a paramedic shortage and everything else, Scott, which of the levers would you pull first? If you were going to design the system the way you, in all of your wisdom, would do, which, and again, I've got a little, I'm going to go from here, but tell me what, 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 what breaks the cycle? What, what hatches the chicken? 
uh, et cetera. Well, no, I, th I think it's an interesting question and I'll, and I'll, you know, premise all my comments with the fact that I'm an employment sided management attorney, right? I'm a management sided employment attorney. Let me say that right way. Um, so, you know, I'm not looking at this per se in an organized labor sort of way, but what I do think is. And I just throw that out, by the way, I just throw that out as an example of like. No, no, no. I totally you know, get it. And I think, you know, we're seeing some of these challenges as we're looking at certification issues across different jurisdictions. And we're looking at issues related to even moving folks who formerly served in the military in a, in a role really similar to EMS and trying to get them over onto the certified um, roles in any particular state. And I think, you know, again, this comes back to, you know, that old saying that if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. And the reality is we all kind of put people on a stretch of the same ways. Yes, there may be some regional protocols, but truthfully, I don't really understand why there isn't sort of one, you know, uh, I understand the desire to control EMS at the local level, but I do not believe that we're in a time when we need to be creating uh, barriers for people who want to move potentially from one location to another um, for, for whatever reason to be able to, even during you know, national responses, we should be at some sort of core um, level of, as Art said, you know, terms and definitions where we're all really on the same page. Um, again, I think probably if we look back as to why there are all these independent little fiefdoms when it comes to certification and rules and regulations. Some of it is geographical. In other words, what is happening based upon, you know, I did a call in the middle of Missouri, you know, two ALS trucks covering like 1400 square miles, very different than doing a call in Revere, Massachusetts, where I have four trauma centers and three, you know, interventional cath labs within four minutes. So I, I get that part, but again, you know, we don't need to create barriers for people to get into this field. And I think if we could, if we could, you know, find a way to find those core things, make it easier for people to get into the, into the industry, to your point, you know, being for, you know, white, dare I say, middle-aged, sorry guys, uh, guys sitting on a screen, you know, oftentimes when you look at where some of these educational programs are and, uh, you know, the barrier to entry might be that there isn't public transportation to some of these places. There isn't childcare in the evenings when a lot of the EMT and paramedic courses are done. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think um, it is time, as you put it, for one sort of central oversight agency that, you know, we don't even have that really in the federal government. So, um, you know, I'll defer to Art on this one, but, you know, I think, I think that we need to be removing barriers, not, not erecting them. So, Sean, let me turn to you. You you run a bit of a unique service, um, yeah. and Boston is a pretty unique place, I think, when it comes to medicine in general. Uh, not just the sheer compressed nature that Scott referred to, uh, but you've got some big providers. You got a lot of small towns. You got a whole mess of history. Uh, you've got you know amazing institutions, right? So, and and ironically, by the way, as an aside. Boston University. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. uh, the uh, I also studied across the river at MIT, so I can't read too much. On so, but yeah, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't for nearly as long, and I don't actually know what their mascot is. So now they might pull back my my certificate from there. Anyway, that's sad. Um, it's Ivy League. Do they even have a? And then they have like a color. 
their colors. Oh, there's got to be a blazer or something you wear. That's what yeah. elbow patches and stuff. It's too expensive for me anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, sweaters. Fair enough. So um, it, it's actually interesting to, to think about so much of the complexity of mobile medicine in the Boston area uh, because so much of the complexity of the health IT conversation also has its roots in uh, in the Boston area. Vicky Tripathi, who's now the uh, off the national coordinator of health IT for the federal government, came out of that area. He was he ran the Mass, uh, I believe it was the Mass eHealth Collaborative is the formal name. Um, and Jonathan Bush, of course, founded Athena Health in your backyard. And Meditech is down uh, near Rhode Island, the Attleboro area, I believe, near Foxborough, something like that. Um, so yeah, there's a, a whole lot going on over there. And so I want to turn to you, Sean, with a, a question that I know is controversial. It should be controversial, but it's also very emblematic and I think endemic to the problem. What evidence do we have if we have all of these data problems? And I've got a nifty little flowchart here that we'll come to that I wrote as you guys were talking about the relationships between data and, and, and statistics and you're getting to a better life for all the practitioners. So people want to be in this industry. I think there's a direct line that can be drawn. But if we have these problems, slicing and dicing metrics and comparing Armstrong Ambulance to Bennington Rescue Squad to Spalding IFT transports, <laughs> and not to say any of the fire services, the air transport services, community paramedicine agencies, right? I mean, there's all these different flavors that are in here. What is the evidence of the value of this industry? Right? What, what is the value of EMS? What is the proof that we have that we do a better job than other forms of intervention, aside from the fact that in some cases we might be faster? And, it, and mind you, obviously, I, I bleed purple. So like <laughs> this is coming from me. But I think as a data guy, don't we have to ask this question? How can you answer the question if the data are so broken? Go ahead. As for and, and I think that is the key point, Jonathan, is how can we measure it uh, when the, the data systems are so disparate and they don't either A, talk to one another, they don't speak the same language, we don't measure things the same way. Um, and when you look at impact or cost savings, you also have to think about what do we consider a benefit? Um, how do we consider a benefit? So do we consider, you know, if you look at EMS, even looking at that, does EMS truly define who and what we are? You know? Oh, is, yeah. Yeah. But with that, you know, it's, it's tough to get aligned when mobile medicine or whatever term we're using today doesn't have a true identity. So it's tough to measure that impact when we don't have standardized definitions. We don't even really know who we are and what we're doing. Um, you talk to one, one group and they'll absolutely tell you that IFT work, which is absolutely the bulk of what I do, has no impact on healthcare. But I can tell you that if, if, if my IFT service is not performing at the top of their game, um, 
the services that are providing direct EMS care are not going to be able to get out of that emergency room any, any faster. And now that's going to have direct patient impact. I think what we often tend to do, especially now, is, is we see a couple steps out of our own box. We, we, we are struggling to see beyond where where we are because we are so stressed, because we are so backed up. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to figure out kind of in the now how to manage where we are. I don't know if we ever really had, had a, a good grasp on where we are and where we want to go. We've kind of kind of trudged through it. Uh, but now where things seem to be kind of, you know, almost falling apart at the seams in some instances, it, it's, it's difficult to get everybody on the same page <clears throat> excuse me, um, to even get, get folks to have a couple of minutes to even talk about some of this stuff. It, it's, it's a true challenge, and, and I don't know if, if we're ready to have those discussions. Um, we see it on the hospital side, you know, the individual fiefdoms, the, the difficulty in breaking down the barriers to even just sharing common practice. Um, let alone sharing some, you know, what could be business proprietary type of data. Um, you know, it's difficult for me to, to, to measure benchmarks against another ambulance service because there's not another ambulance service out there that's like mine. I'm a rehab-based hospital service. There's not one out there in the United States. So how can I measure my benchmarks against another like service? It's, it's extremely difficult. Art, you came off of mute. I assume you want to chime in. Yeah, no, I, I would agree that, you know, everybody's stretched thin and they, you know, we're living in our own fiefdoms. I, I'm actually, to be honest with you, I'm, I, I'm kind of thinking that this is probably the best opportunity we've ever had to have this that right unified now? voice. Oh. Right now. That, that, and I'm not, not the size <laughs> of this conversation, but this is an excellent opportunity. But, um, but that the, the point that the, that, the, that the system is in, is actually as as broken as it is, or as broken as it seems, and as stressed as it seems, is actually creating the perfect opportunity to have this conversation. Because when we look at, you know, so I'm on the truck today, right? So that that goes to show you that you know we're we're living in a point where you know the system is so stressed that all of these people are carrying out roles that they normally wouldn't be. It's not efficient for system delivery. When you're pulling, you know, people higher up in management onto the truck because it's that stressed at the day, so now is the is the perfect opportunity. And I think that, you know, as, as much as it's creating difficulties, it's creating an opportunity that we haven't seen, uh, at least I haven't seen in, in 30 years, to start to look at how do we work together to have this conversation to make it a, a more unified system. And I'll tell you, not for nothing, but I actually think, again, it's why I wanted to bring you guys together for this. I think this actually is a demonstration of that. Um, you guys cross lines, even though in some ways we are the least diverse group in the history of anything. <clears throat> but in other ways, we this is you actually do in a lot of ways. And I mean, Scott, kind of looking at you on a hand, I mean, you particularly, you're, you're like a bee out there just pollinating conference to conference to conference all over the country. It's right? spreading... Spreading the wisdom, uh, seeds of Scott. Uh, Be careful about that in the COVID time period. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Uh, maxed and masked and vaxxed and, and taxed and all, anything else that goes with that. So, uh, you know, I, I think 
let, let's turn to you on that. I'm saying, you know, when you when you go between these groups, and I'll I'll put a small plug in here for the Congress of Mobile Medical Professionals, um, which I know you've all participated in or or heard of and whatnot as, as we've worked in the last 18 or so months to try to be a bigger tent. That was the entire concept, right? Be be the biggest tent possible uh, because we needed to create a forum where folks could quite frankly, tell each other they were wrong and not say, well, then I'm going to go start my own association. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, if you instead invite people to disagree, then, you know, I think that's, is that a legacy? You know, you mentioned military uh, and, and I have a lot of draw to that having been in Boston on September 11th when I walked myself to government center uh, and enlisted in the United States Army Reserves. Uh, turns out Tourette syndrome and the U.S. Army do not see eye to eye. Uh, for viewers out there, if uh, if your seems if my portion of the screen seems a little twitchy, it's not you, it's me. I promise. Um, so, uh, you know, Scott, when when you know you look at the history of mobile medicine, I'll still use that buzzword for now. Coming out of the fire service, which which in in some countries is still a military function. Um, and has huge connections here to a military history. Um, there is a rank hierarchy and so on and so forth. Do we, has the, the way that this industry grows put itself into a corner? And by the way, the US military, of course, is also undergoing a reckoning on all kinds of fronts about free, free ability to communicate. And if you are not allowing you know, folks to express themselves in certain ways, do you end up with other stressors that that keep people from enlisting? Um, you know, so to the degree that how much how much of the invitation to cross communicate to tap into the concerns of the line crewmen um, do our structures support that? Right from a managerial perspective, do you think people feel able to say, for example, I don't want to get vaccinated? Uh, let's use a like the most current topic that there is, right? I mean, that's that's drawing battle lines in New York City, in Los Angeles. Um, serious problem when you have a significant portion of your workforce not come in, and you don't, and then another portion of them are sick and taking care of kids at home, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So, uh, have we gotten ourselves into that situation by a very structural issue? And if so, do we have to let it melt down? Well, I want to make just a couple of comments. First, you know, having just gotten back from the American Ambulance Association's annual conference, I attended a couple of meetings on uh, the pre-conference meetings before the show started on Sunday. And in the, in the room was the International Association of Firefighters, NAEMT, the National Registry folks, you know, Dr. Kramer. You know, it was the first time I can recall all of those groups getting together because of one sort of similar problem re related to workforce. And so I have to give all of those groups a lot of credit for sort of laying down, you know, to me, it never really all made sense because, you know, I, I used to have a state inspector here in the state of Massachusetts when I'd say, how do you, how do you deal with that service? They like they always just do it really poorly. He goes, you know, I love all God's children, right? Because basically there's room for everybody at the table. And so my thought had always been, I don't care what kind of EMS service that you deliver. 
I just care that you really aspire to deliver good EMS, no matter how it's delivered. And, you know, was a call firefighter, although I know in many, in many places, they don't see call, they see call firefighters as potentially problematic because they take away from paid firefighters. But the reality is a huge chunk of our country is covered by call fires and volunteer fire services. But so just to get out there that I think we are, we have turned an unbelievable corner due to the need. This is sort of like, you know, in Game of Thrones when everybody gets together to face the larger looming challenge. So um, just to say that, but I, I think, you know, this is not, at least from my perspective on the workforce side, I, as I say, the problem can be solved, you know, or the solution is simple, but it's not going to be easy. And again, when you ask sort of down at the field level, you know, if two to 3% of our time is spent, you know, and I say engaging in coaching and mentoring, what I really mean is in supporting field staff, right? You know, um, and especially when Sean talks about how busy they are, the fact of the matter is I used to do a shift where I did 30 calls in 24 hours, but it was typically followed up with another shift in a day or two that was, you know, just one or two calls. I don't think any services are really dealing with anymore. So people are getting, you know, getting um, run harder and heavier these days. But again, fundamentally, everybody goes to work, wants to make sure that they're doing good work. They're looking for feedback. They do need to be connected with and, and if only two to 3% of the time they're receiving some sort of support from their underlying organization. And, you know, I've said this, I don't know how many times now, when I hear leaders tell me that they have an open door policy, I call crap on that because, you know, the purpose of the open door, you're relying, you're telling them you have to make the effort to come to me. And what I say is open door policy means you might accidentally fall out of that office every so often. But when I look at what Art's having to do, right, if he's staffing a truck, how the heck is he supposed to, how the heck is he supposed to do that? Well, you know, it has to be intentional. It, you know, folks pay attention to what you measure. And unless you understand how often the team members in your organization are engaging, you know, the team members in your leadership and how often they're getting feedback and how often you're hearing stuff, frankly, you should be you should be more worried about what they think about working at your organization than what you think about their performance because the reality is those scales have tipped and um, I don't care what you're paying those folks they are in charge you should know that for sure. Art, I say turning to you that's going to be the natural segue there. But do you feel and I've thought this about you for a while because you know you you've run the truck voluntarily because you're a glutton for punishment um, in a variety of places. Um, but do you, do you consider that to be a superpower of yours? Cause I would, I actually think it keeps you so close to your crews because you're in the suck with them. Um, as opposed to being in the office, I wonder what would be your perspective I mean, between what, what Scott threw out there, the, the need to, to understand what they're feeling, but at the same time, do, do, don't you feel it too when you're out there? Uh, what do you think? You do. You do, but I, I think that it depends if you're, if you're in the truck because it's a choice. So from a management standpoint, if I'm in the truck because it's a choice, that's different and that's having that positive impact with your crews. If you're in the truck because you're short, that's a different situation. You know, and, and, and I don't think that, you know, when, if I, yes, I'm interacting with my partner on that shift but I'm interacting with them in a different manner. A, because I'm probably trying to get stuff done in the office at the same time that I'm trying to get stuff done in the truck. If, 
if it's a shift that I'm looking at down the road and saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to go ride the truck with this crew or these people next week, I'm planning my week around being able to devote that time to, to, to support them and talk to them and find out what's going on. But when it's, you know, like today, I'm, I'm filling a call out today. So my day wasn't planned around being on the truck. My day was planned around doing some of the other stuff that I had to do within the organization. And so, you know, to, to Scott's point of getting out there, you know, you, you, that has to be, uh, and I, I don't want to make it sound like it's not a, you know, can't be a spur of the moment, but it, it has to be planned in the sense that you have to remove the other distractions if you're going to have that meaningful impact, you know, conversation with your crews. And just riding the truck doesn't necessarily give you that, that meaningful interaction. Okay, uh, Sean, I want to turn to you with the same question, but I want to throw a little caveat on that, if, if I may. Uh, are you able, it looks like you're moving. Are you able to, to answer a question? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm parked on the side of the road. Okay, That's sounds good. good. So when you and I sat down a couple weeks ago, which was really fun, by the way, um, the, one of the things that you said to me that hit incredibly hard, and I have never, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say it to me this way. So I want to take the same question of, the relationship that you have with your personnel and understanding, you know, the pulse, but also the, the workforce is I asked you how you get things done at your organization, because you've got a lot of masters around you. And your answer was extremely pointed. It was, I'm in senior, senior leadership. It's a bit of a paraphrase, <laughs> but it was something to that effect. And, and I thought it was such an interesting view to me because of this idea of that perspective suggests that you have worked yourself into a position where you can make influential decisions um, and you can be, you know, but, but again, you, you're not the guy, you're a member of senior leadership, right? You are one of many in a very complex organization, but it suggested to me that you breathe that advocacy role. Um, and, and uh, tell me, I, I don't think I'm misreading that again, from everything we've talked about. You have this education role with uh, AAAs, right? And so clearly these topics are important to you. So do you think that, how, how do you think taking on the role as advocate, as go-between, as representative of that crew, that agency to your many constituents? So how, do you, how do you live that? And how do you think it balances with the reality of being a service that's so short-staffed, for example, that that may be a luxury? Uh, that seems like a pretty, again, as you talk about kind of splitting the seams a little bit, but it seems like those are, those are some pretty heavy, heavily integrated roles in a job that if they come apart, they don't, really, they don't really work naturally in separate silos as they do when you are pulse and manager and mentor and advocate, um, you are clearly living that internally. To talk to me about how that, how you reconcile that or how someone not in your position could do so. So it's interesting because when I say that I'm a member of senior leadership, you know, that, that's absolutely the case. But so to that point, I have a responsibility to the team that works for me. I have responsibility to my boss who I report to and to the boss that she reports to. I have responsibility to the healthcare system that we work for and trying to juggle all those different poles can be difficult. But first and foremost, um, as, a, as a leader of an EMS organization, I have responsibility to make sure that my team has the tools and the mindset to do the job that they're designed to do. 
And as, as a leader in an organization that is as diverse as mine is, um, I feel very fortunate that I, I can pull a lot of different levers to get the work done. Um, it can be, it can be fun and interesting, uh, but it can also be a challenge because sometimes the levers don't necessarily work. But I, I think as a, as, as any leader in any organization, you know, you have a responsibility to your staff to show that, you know, you have their best interest at heart. It goes, it goes back to, to Scott's point about engagement, you know, engaging your team, understanding what their needs are. As you said, Jonathan, you know, being in the suck with them uh, to a certain degree and, and, you know, Although I spend a fair amount of time in my office, I, I do balance uh, working the road when I need to or when I want to, because um, I need, in order for me to effectively lead my organization and inspire my team to want to give me 110%, even when they don't think they can, uh, I have to know what's going on. I have to have my finger on the pulse. I have to understand the challenges. I have to be able to leverage my position within the larger organization to help make their work easier um, and and advocate where I can, stand up for them when I can, um, uh, provide some course direction when it's needed. It, 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 I, I feel like I, uh, amongst the... We're in, I'm in a group where I, I, there's not a lot of leaders that have that flex and that ability to pull different levers from all across different healthcare systems um, to be able to give the team what they need so, so they can function effectively. So I want to be mindful of your respective times because you guys are amazing and I'm so grateful to have you here. Um, I, want to, I want to pull out a couple, I want to sort of capstone some of this with some additional words pulling out of what your, your conversations have been and, and bring it back around to the conversation about evidence and education. Um, because I mentioned I've got this nifty little, I mean, literally drawn on the back of a napkin. Can't really see there. Nope, nope, not do it, nope. Zoom's not gonna let me do it. It's an invisible uh, work, you know, a flow diagram there. <laughs> but one of the most, uh, look, we, all of us on this call are, are students of leadership and organizational behavior. I mean, whether it's, whether it's running a service uh, in medicine or in business, I don't think that, or law for that matter, HR, I don't think it makes a difference. Um, there are clearly principles of leadership that one tries to internalize. One of the most important ones that I learned uh, a couple of years ago was around something called the invisible contract. Um, and, I, and I've always tried to come back to this idea um, because once it's one of those things where once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, and these are this, this concept of the assumptions that are made of understandings that we have of people that are never spoken, never, certainly never signed off. Um, we have them in our relationships with our spouses and our kids. We have them with our coworkers. We have them with our charges, uh, you know, and, and so I, I find myself wondering because Tying into another piece of this and going back to the data and the charting and all that stuff is the, the punitive nature of things, the, the, the way that our industry runs by mandate in, in so many instances, right? I mean, talk about, you know, you, you mentioned, Sean, about the systems that don't talk to one another. And while I don't really want to get into, per se, things like procurement reform, which we totally need in this country, um, the idea that, you know, things that are put in place but don't talk to one another 
often the answer is just do it, right? We, I mean, you know, we, we got an instruction. We don't really know why we're doing it. There's a, a directive that came down from the feds to the, a, an organization, to a state, to a local, to a LEMSA in California, Remsco in New York, in these regions, right? And, and, and we follow the instructions. And, you know, it's Monday morning, so let's change those again. That kind of thing. To me, so much of that comes back to education. Uh, but it's not education per se. It's not, not in a classroom. A, a lot of it goes back to me to this concept of the invisible contract, right? Are we assuming? And, and by the way, if, if those aren't followed, then there is punishment, right? Whether it is actual punishment or perceived punishment, another invisible contract, right? How often have you guys heard in your work, if you don't document it, you didn't do it? Well, okay. <laughs> So if I didn't do it, then now I may, if I didn't put it in the box, now I might lose my livelihood, right? I wonder, I always feel like I, I, I run a company that sometimes works in the EPCR space, which is the second most hated technology in the world after electronic health records, right? Nobody likes EPCRs, right? And, and I, I just try to figure out why anybody cares about an EPCR to the point where they're this emotional to hate them because it's a document. It shouldn't, it shouldn't elicit passion in that way. And I realize it's because it gets bound up with the fear of losing your job and being able to, to feed your kids and continue to do your work, right? Or keep your organization open and working, right? And so if I didn't do it, then I don't get paid or I get sued or I get in trouble. No wonder people are afraid of this thing. It's got all kinds of baggage associated with it, right? So I find that that goes back to this invisible contract. And when you talk about the levers that you pull and the time you spend in the field, which by the way, I think makes each of you fantastic leaders at what you're doing. And Scott, obviously you being in all these places, you have a privilege that I actually try to emulate. It's one reason why I travel as much as I do. I'm literally trying to emulate you. In fact, I talk sometimes to my kids this way and I'm trying to emulate them too. And they wonder what the hell I'm doing. I mean, there was really people used to say, I have a face for, you know, a face for radio and a voice for print. I, I, I didn't know what they meant until I met you. <laughs> anyway, um, loved buddy. So the, the, the invisible contract, right? How much do your crews know what you do, right? I mean, do they know what it means to be a manager? Because uh, you spend time with them, right? Learning what they're going through. But there's a lot of crap that comes at people in management. And I don't know that they appreciate it either. So this idea of like, well, the boss is telling me to do something. Maybe the boss is being told to do something. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's something we don't know. Uh, or, you know, and, and I find that, again, when we think about this flow chart that I did, which is data to statistics, to education, to evidence, to, and we can talk more about this, but to um, investment, to less overtime, to better life. And I'll do that again, because I want to hopefully we write this down. So if you can go, I can see a line, data to learning how to do statistics, which comes from education, which allows you to demonstrate evidence, which generates investment, which results in more resources, which allows people to have a balanced life, which achieves the objectives that every single one of you has mentioned in different ways now, right? So ultimately to me, data is a kernel, but it's a tool, right? It's not the be all and end all. It helps flow these things forward with the ability to say, are we achieving those metrics across ourselves, within our own KPIs, across our, our colleagues? But, but how much of this comes back to, and this is my, my kind of capstoning question for each of you, as the managers that you are and have been, have you found occasion 
to teach your personnel what it means to be you, right? So that instead of having the open door, going back to Scott, I think your analogy is wonderful. It's one thing to say, come into me when you have an issue. How often have you had a shadow, right? And, and someone understanding just how much shit is coming at your head. And so you've got spinning plates that they don't see. And if those in those are the invisible contract, at least in my view, if they knew, just like you try to breed empathy with them by going into the field, would they have empathy for what you're dealing with if they saw your moving parts and the gears that you have to balance? I think that would be, if I can get that from each of you and you know, you guys talk to each other, that that I think would be hopefully a level of conversation that I have never heard happen in this in this in this industry, largely because of the silos, by the way, Scott. Right. And we talk about, you know, nurses talk to nurses, firemen talk to firemen, and medics talk to medics, and docs talk to docs, and yada yada yada. But you've got management conferences, you've got management associations, you have you have organizations representing the, the folks on the ground. How and, and as you mentioned, the first time that you can think of within the last few weeks that they've come together to say, what is each of us experiencing that we may have never said to you, to the other for fear of blank? That's where I kind of want you guys to go. So, so talk to me about how we inform the folks that work with and for us about what it is that each of you does every day. What would you wish they knew that they don't? Can I jump in real quick? Please. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to jump ahead of Scott. Um, I'd like uh, for all of you guys. This is for all of you guys. When I first met Scott, Scott, him and I had some, some pretty in-depth discussions. I think it was at a AAA conference. Um, he was still running an ambulance service at the time. And one of the things that he had said to me has resonated ever since. And he had talked about the question why and what he asks his team. He, he, he tries to understand what each individual player does he wants the individual people in his organization to understand why they do what they do, how it impacts the organization. Um, you know, you can ask the, the five, six, seven different whys to, to get to the root cause of stuff. And this is something you and I talked about the other night at dinner, Jonathan, is getting to the root cause of stuff, whatever, whatever it is. Is, is it a, a policy violation? Is it a discipline action? Is it a treatment therapy? When, when talking about data, the gets to the why we do what we do. Uh, and we can't get to that until we ask that question. Um, but but to, to answer your question directly, I have had these conversations with my team. I frequently offer them a seat behind my desk. They're more than welcome to take it for a day. Uh, not once has anybody said, yes, please, can I do that? Um, they typically run out of the, out of the door screaming. Um, but I also, I don't hide what my role is. I don't hide the stress that I'm under. I don't hide the, 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 the challenges that we're facing. Um, I'm, I'm brutally honest with the team. I, I have those difficult conversations. Um, but how rare and are you? It's, it's tough. How rare are you in that regard? Because again, I, the, the word stigma just popped into my mind. Right? As a manager, and you talk about your stress, how common is that? Uh, you know, how, what has been the effect that others may look at you and say, well, if, if he's telling them how much stress he's under, is that going to make you, me as a manager look weak? 
Or is that going to make me as a manager like someone you can relate to and therefore realize that a little empathy goes a long way on all sides? What do, what do you think? And what do you hear from other people that you engage with in your various groups? I think it depends upon the perspective of the person that, that's asking the question. Um, everybody has a different perspective and you're going to have players that, um, you know, will will have a little bit of empathy and say, you know what, Sean's asked me to do this. There's a reason why he does things. He tells us the reasons why uh, he, he explains his, his rationale for these things. Um, and that is, that is understood and bought by a lot of individuals. Um, you're always going to have the occasional person who's just, no matter what you say, what you do, how, how you put it, it's, it's a problem. You, you spend 20%, 80% of your time dealing with, what, 10, 20% of, of, of individuals, and, and the bulk of the time, the, the majority of the team understands that. Um, I've been working hard over the past couple of years to kind of focus on that, that, that 20% that, um, well, the 80% that, that, that I don't have to deal with on a regular basis and focus on them and spend the bulk of my time on them. And, and the other ones that they don't want to be there, fine. You know what? It is what it is. But I want to make sure that, that my team knows that they have 100% support for me and my leadership team. What has been the, the result, the dividend, if hopefully positive, but the result of one or another of allowing people to sit behind you at that desk? <laughs> what, did you, what did you find? You said there's a lot, some of them ran out, but did anyone not? And among the folks who didn't, what did it do? They asked, they asked the question, what can they do to help change the system? Okay. They get engaged. They, they want to be part of the solution and offer suggestions on, on how to make work easier. I can't ask for anything better than that. You know, um, constructive criticism is fantastic until it stops becoming constructive. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that, that, that's a wonderful capstone there. All right, I'm going to point to you only because I'm still afraid you're going to get called out at any moment here. Um, Sean, that was tr truly wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Art, how would you, how would you take that? Um, so I, I, I think as an industry, we, we don't do a good job of telling, uh, you know, our, our staff what's happening behind the scenes. I mean, you know, uh, I, I will spend, you know, heck, if I, if I have an employee who is the least bit interested in how the finances work, because um, I've been accused of being a numbers guy, we'll spend, um, you know, hours explaining to them how it works if they want to listen for that long. Because I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the better understanding that each of our employees has about the entire aspects of our business, the better they are at what they do. Um, you know, as much as we would like to say that that provider that's going out and caring for that cardiac arrest is a medical provider, there's a lot more to what they do than just, you know, putting the IV and doing the intubation and, and defibrillating and transporting that patient. There's a whole side of the operation that's just as large that happens behind the scenes that we don't talk to them about as an industry. And, and that's very important. It's very important that they understand it. They don't have to, you know, we, we're not looking to give them an MBA and we're not looking to say that, you know, you need to be able to make all the decisions, but, I find that when they understand what's happening behind the scenes, they have a better understanding of what we're all doing and that we're all playing our own part in the system. 
And, you know, if all they do is see somebody go in and the office door closes, and then at four o'clock, the office door opens and they leave, then they don't necessarily understand what, what goes on. And, and, and that's a big problem. Uh, I, I think, you know, as, a, you know, as an industry uh, without, you know, because let's face it, some of these people are going to be our leaders of tomorrow. And, you know, it goes back to what Scott mentioned at the beginning about, you know, mentoring these people that sometimes that's just, you know, that, that few minutes, you know, when they ask you a question of it, not only saying yes or no, um, but explaining why the answer is what it is, because there's a lot more that goes through our heads when we come up with that answer than just yes or no, or at least there should be. Um, and we need to impart that process onto our staff so that they can start to make those decisions for themselves, but more importantly, so that they can carry that through as they progress up through the system. So, Scott, I'm going to bring it to you in a minute for, for a, a circle, as you mentioned, we're going to start and end with you and give you the last word on this. But uh, Art, I want to ask kind of a, a follow-up that I think you mentioned an MBA. Uh, and obviously, we, we've, we've touched on education here today. I don't I mean, the topics of degrees could be another several hours worth of debate in another forum. But but I do think it's worth, you know, one thing that I find very interesting is how confused people are about the where raises come from, right? That raises don't come from degrees. Raises come from uh, scarcity effects, right? Basic basic supply-side economics. Right? So to the degree that if you have a credential or anything else that makes you rarer, you can command more money for being rarer if that is a priority, right? And what I just heard you say is something that I actually kind of hope and pray could become a basis for giving people higher wages, which is to say, are you an interested person? Right? It's because if you are somebody who could be a future leader, isn't that, and, and as demonstrated, we're talking about evidence, right, by being the person who supports the organization, who wants to learn the organization, who becomes a right hand, a left hand, whatever it is, right, kind of understands that and therefore makes themselves more valuable, isn't that sense of, of curiosity, for better and worse, because I think it's a, it's a loaded reality, but isn't that sense of, of curiosity itself scarce enough that if you had somebody come to you and say, I want to be, I want to be a leader, I want to know all this, is that the kind of thing that would they would then get rewarded? And there's a uh, question for you, Art. So come off from you real quick. <laughs> is this is this is this something where you would look at this person and say, I may be incentivized to retain this person, right? I want to be incentivized to find a way. To make sure that this person wants to stay, not only because they're interested and we do a good job, but economically, just like in a corporate organization, where if you find a, a superstar, you're going to possibly give them a raise or a bonus or something to keep them there. So is, is that something that ever goes through your mind or could it? And could that form a more solid basis than this idea that we go and we get an ephemeral degree and why am I surprised that I didn't get a huge bump? But maybe if I didn't need a degree, but I was generally interested in learning the back end, I don't need an MBA to become extremely valuable. What do you think? I, I think I think definitely uh, we want the, we want them to be interested, and, and we want that we want to incentivize that interest. 
but I, I think that's, we a, that's a, well, but that's a twofold thing. I, I, we want to incentivize the interest, but we also want to encourage the interest. And I think there's, there's two things there. One of them is the employee who comes in with a general interest and they want to know more. They want to be involved in the process, but there's also the employee that we can make interested in the process. And I, so I think there's two separate things. Um, you know, it's incumbent upon us to try to get employees who maybe don't have an interest to find out what that interest is and can we encourage that interest and can we use that interest to the betterment of the system? How so you not every, yeah, not, well, not, I, well, and, and that's a struggle. I think we all struggle with that. You know, it's one thing for us to say it. It's another thing to put it into practice. And, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, uh, obviously takes some time in getting to know your staff. And, you know, as much as I would like to say that, yeah, we do that, we, we, don't do a phenomenal job. And I'll speak for myself at that for, because, you know, we do get bogged down in the day-to-day -day, uh, minutia of what we do. Um, and, and we don't always have the time that we would like to, to put into to, to encouraging that. But every, you know, all of your employees have an interest and, and whatever that interest might be, we need to find it. And we need to try to encourage that um, because it has some impact on what we're going to do or, or, or where they can apply. All right, so Scott, and now we've 360 back to Newton. I like that. Uh, I, I swear this this video podcast again for the benefit of Mr. Hoare, uh is not, in fact, a podcast. It is a vodcast. Well, let me just. I want to make one comment on something that both Sean and Art said. So, and and frankly, you. So you talked about data stats, education, evidence, investment, resources, balance, yeah. life, and then uh, uh, you know objectives. Yeah. And one of the things that I've asked for a long time is, you know, the whole process of bringing someone into EMS is largely a clinically based educational um, path. And so once we, you know, they go through the certification test or the, the class and they pass the class and they take the certification test and often we put them through some sort of educational pre-hire process. And then we put them into orientation where we spend like 90% of the time in orientation is tied to something clinical based. and and I ask you sort of what percentage of the average EMS person's day is spent doing clinical medicine and in what percentage of um, what impact does a field provider have on the overall financial health and sustainability of the organization? And so, you know, my impression is, uh, one, I know when I got into EMS, there was no articulated path from EMT to director of operations. And so this, this goes back to that issue about education. I was a 1-4 college dropout, but I was the director of operations of a service when I decided to go back to college. That was for me, not because I thought it was going to return a higher investment in EMS specifically. So um, I just think that, uh, I mean, a couple of things that, um, you know, were said that we shouldn't be surprised that people have sort of no no idea about what most of us do and, and no idea about how or, or how EMS is financially supported and what are those levers that get pulled to make a, a service survive because, well, we haven't taught anybody any part of that. And I don't understand why that isn't core to what we teach folks in 
the onboarding process, right? So that they can understand. Number two, I got asked while I was in um, in the AAA conference by an owner of a service um, to be his mentor. And that's something that one blew me away because it was totally unexpected. And of course I said, are you kidding? Yes. Um, but number two, I often wonder why as part of the onboarding process and through the development process that we don't require that folks that we try and find mentor-mentee relationships for them based upon where they are in their career. Um, and then the last thing that I'll sort of say is, um, you know, uh, you know, and I appreciate the fact that you've talked about Newton, but again, I want to make sure, as we said, and you were kind enough to say this, this is not an advertisement. I am never going to convince someone to use a tool that I think is going to fix their problem because what we've known for years and years is that when when people give, when doctors give patients advice to do things that will fix their underlying problems or prevent them from having problems, that we know historically that doesn't change the problem. I can't convince owners and leaders of EMS agencies, you know, it's the tool is not going, Newton 360 will not correct your problem. You as an organization are the only people who can correct the problem. Employment relationships are like any other relationship. So just consider how often you interact with your staff. Would you tolerate that level of engagement by your spouse or by your friends, right? And number two, when you think about those lifelong friends who you can pick up the phone after 10 years and go, hey, Jonathan, often you and I will talk once every year and we have a great, it's like nothing ever happened. There was a lot that went into developing that before we got to that stage. So don't think you're going to have that. You can't, would you tolerate a dog that came home once a year? You definitely wouldn't. So this comes back to you get what you invest. I sort of say about labor, every management team gets the union they deserve, right? Why? Because at the end of the day, if, you know, employees invest in the underlying leader and in the underlying core mission. And, and by the way, it becomes far more stickier when they understand the why. And, and again, what we do is intrinsically valuable. You have to go one further than that, because guess what? What your competitor does is intrinsically valuable. What hospitals do is intrinsically valuable. What fire departments do or, or whoever it is, is intrinsically valuable. What makes your place the place that people want to stay, develop, and invest in. And that to me is the answer. And though that's where this, this problem gets corrected. And, and because I want to make sure, although that's a wonderful place to end, I'm not going to there. I want to just ask you a, a follow-on. Um, especially when all three of you have been talking about relationship and the importance of building that for every piece of this, right? Whether it's the education, the evidence, the clinical practice, the trust, again, the, 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 the conversation I'm giving next week is called, this is how we share a foxhole uh, at the, the Kansas City Conference about post-traumatic stress. I mean, that battle buddy sensation is earned, right? It doesn't, doesn't just happen. Um, do you find, and this can be for any of you, Scott, I'm looking at you, but, but this for, for either of you guys, or any of you guys, do the folks who work in your organizations want to provide that information, right? Because even though you may be inviting them to do so, again, invisible contract, is there a fear that if I tell you what I really wish I was doing right now is flying kites with my kid? There may very well be a said, well, if I say that, then I'm not focused on the task. Or it turns out I really want to be here because I'm fascinated by 
trauma, right? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Would people look at that and judge it, right? And say, well, you know, that's a little kooky. Um, so, you know, to the degree that, and, and again, I'm not suggesting that either of these is, is, is right or wrong, but do you find that even, even if you are an open leader who asks that, do the folks who are there trust that you will listen to it and use it not against them, but in their, in their interest, in the collective interest, to, to drive those bonds. So, and, and if they don't, how do we get there? Yeah, and, and, I'll, and, I, and I'll just, you know, because we all get paid, lawyers get paid by the word, right? So we can never shut, shut us the hell up. Um, what I'll say is this, What's think about point? all the decent relationships you've developed in your lifetime and think about how often you felt or, or what is it that makes you feel comfortable telling that trusted person something. And then once you think about that, because again, work relationships are just like friendships and marriages and every other relationship you're going to have. And there are some times, and there's actually been a lot of studies on this, that you find people you know forever and you don't trust them. And there are other people you may meet and within a split second, there's something that makes you share a detail with them. In fact, the um, closing keynote was this thing called, um, uh, what was it called? It was about basically sharing your secret anonymously and, and how it's sort of releasing. I think Imagine now if you can share your secret to someone who you know, because you trust that they're in good hands. And I think, again, this comes back to the... Wow, that was awesome. That was, that was probably impressive. some 85-year-old lady in her Buick, but in any event. So um, if it was, I totally rock on. So um, what I would say is, um, you know, I think this isn't something you can cheat. You're not going to suddenly scratch a lottery ticket and win the personnel relationship trust lottery. This is something that takes a deliberate, just like the diversity issue that you brought up earlier, that stuff's not gonna happen by accident. It has to be intentional. Well, between that and the horn, I think that is the best place I can think to end. Uh, the amount of wisdom among you, what? <laughs> the, the amount of wisdom here. I mean, that, that's like, if, if you were trying to find a way to subtly tell us that we needed to end, that was it. 